Take a network break, grab a virtual donut, and join us for our weekly dip in the ocean of IT news. We've got stories on Arista Network, Starlink, a bunch of financial results, and more. Stay tuned after the news for a sponsored Tech Bytes podcast. We talk about AI ops with sponsor Aruba. Aruba is announcing new capabilities in its Aruba Central platform, using machine learning to do things like provide insights into clients on the network, recommend firmware for the best AP performance, and enable natural language queries in Spanish. You'll hear about that at the end of the show. Let's dive in first with an FU. Uh, Greg, we had talked, I think, last week about Intel uh, and Pat Gelsinger's salary, uh, something like $180 million for the year, mm. uh, even though shareholders said no. The board <laughs> said, sure, you deserve a pat. And, and we both, I think, made the comment that $180 million seems like too much for anyone. Someone wrote in to say, uh, yes, you're right. No one person is worth $180 million, but he is worth at least a good fraction of that. Uh, yes, of course. Obviously, he's been an, more or less been an achiever. He's demonstrated that he's got the capabilities, and he's also, as an ex-Intel executive, in theory, he's got a good running start on what actually happens inside of the company. So someone who's been there, worked his way up through the executive ranks, then went outside, learned some more lessons, and he's bringing those back to Intel. So they're certainly worth money. But um, I think that a lot of people get the view that CIOs, CEOs' jobs or CEOs' lives are like their own. And one of the things that I discovered when I started meeting with CEOs as part of Packet Pushers was that they have personal helpers that do a lot of the work that we have to do for ourselves. And what I mean by that <laughs> is they have personal assistants who track them for a calendar, find out where meeting rooms are. They have extended medical cover so that they don't have to go and queue at the doctor's surgery and wait for 30 minutes. They have people in their houses that do the cleaning and the cooking and the so sure. forth. And when they get to travel, they travel on private jets or helicopters and their chauffeured cars waiting to drive them. And all these things save time. So a CEO can get a lot of stuff done in a day. And all those things are paid for by the company, by the way. Right. So just imagine if your day was you got up in the morning, your breakfast was served, there's a car outside waiting, you take you to the office. You get to the office, there's a personal assistant saying, good morning, these are the things that we've got to do today. You've got 10 minutes to get to the meeting room. The meeting room's on floor four, follow me, I'll take you there, right? Right, exactly. And that's, and that, I was just, you know, I've seen that stuff and I've gone like, how easy is that life? Right. It's not bad. <laughs> it's not bad. So you can get not a lot bad. of work done. You can be really focused. Like, can think about your job. If you had to do nothing but the job, so no paperwork, somebody's answering all your emails, somebody's doing the social media for you, you know, doing your car, taking your car to the garage to get fixed doing your financial advising, you know, all that sort of stuff. You just basically have to, you know, you can do a 10 or 12 hour day of just pure work. Right. Without you any, yep. Yeah. So you're not worth that much money because quite often the situation you're in does all that for you. So for example, if you've ever seen an F1, have you ever seen the F1 drivers when they arrive at the track? No. They come in, cruise in with these clothes on and looking very casual and very relaxed. And then they get into this car, which is like, you know, next thing you know, they're sitting there pulling on hoods and fireproof gloves and a hat. That's all done by somebody else. It's really easy to be a casual, you know, present a glamorous image of, you know, talent and capability when you have personal assistants and mechanics and everything doing everything for you, right? Sure. Yes. So they, they do so have a lot that, of staff. Right? Yep. Yeah. So, it, yeah. And it's not like there was somebody else out there that was going to take Pat Gelsinger and was saying like, I'm going to go over there for 150, so you have to give me 180. That's not how this works at all. Right. right. And the yeah. fact that shareholders said no, but the board was like, yeah, give it to them anyway. Yeah, Who we're still going to go ahead. We're going to ignore yeah. the shareholders. That's a, that's a bit of a kicker, so we'll see. Um, but yeah, just don't, don't get the impression that CEOs have awesome powers that you don't because it's just a case of they are in a situation, they live lives that are not the same as yours because they have all these <laughs> things paid for. 
that yes. helped them have the availability to just focus on that one thing. It's a very different experience from you. And, and it's no different to what you do to focus on study or learning or doing the best possible job. But just imagine if you had someone else mowing your lawn and <laughs> right, cooking your meals, cooking your meals in your house. Yeah. Wouldn't be nice. How much would time nice. would you have? Right, a lot of time. Yeah. yeah. All right. Well, thank you for the uh, follow up. If you got uh, comments, questions, clarifications, uh, commentary, you can hit give it to us all at packapushers.net slash fu. And of course, the fu stands for follow up. Uh, let's dive into the news first. Arista Networks has acquired Pluribus Networks for an undisclosed amount. Pluribus makes a network OS called NetVisor One. It runs on white box switches and DPUs. It creates a network fabric to support software defined networking. Uh, Arista's rebranding Pluribus as Unified Cloud Fabric. They haven't released a lot of details, but to my eyes, it looks like they plan to use the Pluribus NAS for constructing network fabrics that are run directly on servers, like on a DPU, a CPU, or a smart NIC. Mm. Yeah, it's a, it's interesting. Um, in fact, uh, Arista did two acquisitions in this quarter. Another one was a company called Untangle. Yes. Untangle was a firewall company. Yes. Uh, yeah, I have fair. some comments in our um, uh, yeah. section on the financial results we'll get to. Yeah, yeah. But yeah. Edge Threat File, they call themselves Edge Threat Management, which is the modern name for firewall. Um, but so it's interesting that they didn't announce this anywhere except in the financial results. So I think most people who see it that way think it's not a significant acquisition because it wasn't financially significant. Um, so the general assumption would be is that Pluribus has gotten to the point where investors have said, we want to see an exit, and it's been sold to Arista at a nominal price, I think. And I think Pluribus had some great technology. That idea of doing SDN, software-operated networks, without having to have a separate controller, it's actually inside all the devices in the network, was quite unique. And you know what? I actually think that would be well-suited to Arista's business model where they wanna, they're want to. they still focused on that hardware angle. Do you think that? I'm trying to wrap my arms around it because Arista, you know, they've told us over and over one of their core strategies is that they just have one network OS, EOS, which means they get mm -hmm. to focus on software quality for them. And for Arista customers, it's only one OS to operate. Now there's two in the fold. Uh, I mean, I guess I can see why they're going there because I think mainly what they're aiming for is this new DPU market where you can get networking mm -hmm. and, and security capabilities right on a server, right in the compute uh, to create this fabric. So that's a new opportunity for them. I'm just curious how they're going to reconcile yeah. uh, having two NASAs in the stable. And now what happens with Cloud Vision is, is uh, Cloud Vision going to be the manager for Pluribus? How does it all work? I think they've got a lot of pieces to integrate. Yeah, I do think, I mean, they acquired Big Switch a couple of years back, which has an SDN strategy, and that became Cloud Vision which is their cloud automation and visibility, but it was as much for a public cloud as it was for a private cloud. And I think I, there is I a think gap. The big, I think the big mm -hmm. acquisition, I think, was more for the packet broker capabilities than anything, honestly. Yeah, I, I think they've used they did it mostly. Much with the NOS. Yeah. Mm, yes, definitely. But Cloud Vision is also big switch, but that's more of a, you know, span the off-prem cloud and the on-prem cloud. Mm -hmm. I wonder if Pluribus is basically just an app which can be bolted into EOS. It's not like the whole NOS here is a thing. <laughs> Could be, could mm. be. I, I think I'm assuming Arista sees, uh, you know, interesting market uh, opportunities at the edge with all this talk around running on Bluefield yeah. and so on, which is what Pluribus really made yeah. a big splash about. The smart uh, stuff. If they yeah, could, the if they could pick out the Pluribus SDN part, put it into EOS and then integrate the Bluefield and have that, you know, in-network SDN type model, then mm -hmm. that's an interesting product. I don't, there's, there is a way. Of course, they could have just bought it for the customers, 
Could be. It's also Could interesting be. because Arista tends to be sort of a, a, a second mover or a fast follower. Uh, and mm. I think they're moving pretty quickly to my eyes for Arista to get into this sort of edge fabric space, which is where Pluribus was playing. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, I guess there's, I, I assume they're seeing significant opportunity and want to jump on it and maybe get a little bit ahead of their main competitors here. Yeah. Well, over 20% of the revenue comes from two customers, Facebook and Microsoft. For um, Arista. I'm sure, mm -hmm. Yeah, for Arista. Um, and I'm sure that they want to diversify away from that. They don't want to see that, you know, if Microsoft or Meta suddenly, you know, f Facebook suddenly decide that they're going to build their own switches, Arista is going to be, you know, have their financial results aren't going to be pleasant. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm sure they feel nervous. So maybe this is a way to diversify in some sort of way. Yeah. But it was the, it was the fact that the, the announcement just didn't get any <laughs> profile. Very, very stealthy. Very stealthy. Yeah. yeah. They each, yeah. uh, Pluribus put out a blog, Arista put out the blog. It's the exact same blog, and that was it, uh, except for the you know sort of side mention in their financial results because the they whole have sentence to, but they was, didn't even... In Q2, we closed the acquisition of Pluribus Networks, <laughs> yeah. led by former CEO Kumar Squintan. That's it. <laughs> That's it. <laughs> That's it. That's the whole disclosure. <laughs> <laughs> There's no price disclosed, which suggests that the transaction was really small, limited. Yes, uh, I small, it was very small, yeah. So not financially impacting. So that's what leads us to follow on with more speculative conclusions. I'm hoping to hear more from Arista down the line about their strategy regarding, uh, you know, sort of this edge use case, this edge or compute networking fabric, because uh, yeah. there are interesting things you can do, but so far pretty tight-lipped. It's also interesting that they already have the web page up. They didn't just... You know, they right. didn't say, oh, we're going to buy it and we'll get around to it in a few weeks' time. It's actually acquired, <laughs> integrated, pages yep. are up. It's all done. It's, inter it's, it's time. interesting, yeah. Yeah. Anyway, links in the show notes if you want to see that blog. Um, we'll move on. SunGuard Availability Services, they operate colo facilities and disaster recovery or biz continuity services. They've entered an agreement to sell the majority of their business to an organization called 365 Data Centers. Uh, SunGuard filed for bankruptcy in April of 2022. This was actually its second bankruptcy filing in three years. Uh, the agreement with 365 Data Centers has to be approved by a bankruptcy court. Yeah, so US Chapter 11 procedure is that they don't actually go bankrupt. They go into restructuring and SunGuard's found a way to sell at least some of their data centers, and presumably customers in those data centers go over to a new operator. Now, that, yep. none of this is surprising to me, They and it's not a surprise that this happened very quickly. Sometimes in Chapter 11, things take a long time. This The, the whole data center, the demand for data centers is so high that really someone's going to buy all of that business um, because they're going to get a bunch of existing data centers, perhaps not very well fitted out, perhaps very old, not very well run, but still data center space right now. Demand for data centers is growing something like 50% year on year. Um, you know, there are plenty of companies coming up who want space, uh, you know, even in various places. Um, the general sense I got from reading around various places was that SunGuard uh, was taken down finally by electricity costs plus its own internal organization was mm -hmm. fairly bad. I've had several very bad experiences with them as a customer many, many years ago, which means they may have turned around, but it's generally seen that the, the rising prices of electricity forced them to go broke and they failed to arbitrage the risk of an electricity price cost or insert clauses into contracts to transfer the cost to customers. Either way, they're out of business. Uh, so Bloomberg is reporting that 365 data centers bid 52.5 million for the SunGuard assets. Uh, 365 is going to get eight data, data centers in the U.S. along with, quote, its U.S. network infrastructure, routes, and customers. Mm. SunGuard uh, has a number of data centers in Europe. So, Right. And I think we had actually talked about uh, mm. in a few shows back, SunGuard sold off those assets in the U.K. to somebody else. Yeah. Yeah. So they've been, yeah, shedding. 
I think 52 million for eight data centers seems like a pretty good price. <laughs> <laughs> well, it might deal. tell you that they're old and not very, you know. Could be, yes. Yeah. Yeah. Could, yeah. Could be like buying yeah. a couple of old houses that maybe. Yeah. Yeah. They're, they're door up, as I would think. <laughs> a, there's a new reality show for us, a DIY data center. Yeah. <laughs> door upper. All right, moving on. Uh, U.S. Speaker of the House Nancy Pelosi visited Taiwan in early August against the wishes of the Chinese government. In response, the Chinese military has been conducting military exercises in the sea that separates the Chinese mainland from the island of Taiwan. And aside from political issues, Greg, you think there may be supply chain re repercussions here? Yeah, I think this is something that uh, we as an industry need to just keep an eye on. Taiwan is, of course, a key supplier of leading edge silicon, but not just leading edge, also way all the way back to sort of, I think now to 28 nanometer, and they're refusing to take further orders for any of the previous generations, leaving that for other companies. Mm -hmm. And at this point in time, it's not just a factory, it's also all the people involved here. So TSMC has hundreds of thousands of employees who are trained and have specific ex expertise around material science and running these rather elite specialist factories. Mm -hmm. um, it's not going to be possible for the US and Europe to be able to replicate those in a hurry because you have to build tens of thousands of, of skilled employees and they just don't exist. We transferred all that skill offshore and it's going to take some time. And that's what we're seeing now with the CHIPS Act. And in the US, we're seeing Europe do something similar where they're funding companies to build fabrication fabs. And then they're also funding universities. We talked about this last week where we noted that the US CHIPS Act had 54 billion for the companies, but also 84 billion for universities to in research grants to start building up the, the headcount, right? Mm -hmm. Yep. Now, if this week the Chinese government is all in, um, has posted a number of um, articles on social media and in the press and made various public statements that the, in, in the diplomatic channels that they are displeased that Nancy Pelosi, who is the Speaker of the House, visiting Taiwan on a scheduled visit, by the way. This is not the US provoking anything. Um, the Western media, as far as I can tell, so people who know more about the Chinese situation, generally say that this is political posturing ahead of the top committee. So at the end of this year, or during the, the later half of this year, the Chinese committee, Chinese Communist Party committee gets together to decide who will be the leader of the party and then the leader of China. So today mm -hmm. it's Xi, um, Xi, Xi Jinping. Xi, Xi Jinping. Xi Jinping. And he is expected to be reconfirmed. But part of that is to, you know, impress the Communist Party delegates. Now, the actual meeting itself is like good contract and tender meetings. They're all pre-organized and everything that gets said is all worked out in advance. <laughs> no so, surprises. No surprises. So all the decisions are made well ahead of the public meeting. Yes. <laughs> and so what we're seeing now is some jostling from various candidates and one way for politicians to appear leader, leader, you know, leadership-like or to demonstrate leadership is to make hard statements about, you know, hunting down the enemy and shaking the military fist, especially for the Chinese. And that's what we're seeing here is the general thing is that um, political aspirants are saying they, they want to be powerful and demonstrate to the to the Communist Party that they're the right people to lead them into a, a future. Um, and so I'm just a little concerned. It's, it's always possible ta China is there right now shooting missiles over Taiwanese airspace. Mm -hmm. And um, there's reason to think that this is just a feint, you know, or just an exercise to sort of rattle the saber, as they say. Right. But, you know, over time, could get worse, could could be something, could be nothing. So uh, I read some political commentary saying that the uh, the CHIP Act, which is going to 
fund the building of new uh, silicon manufacturing here in the U.S. could potentially be read as a signal to Taiwan that the U.S. eventually plans to abandon Taiwan mm. um, because it could manufacture its own chips and wouldn't be reliant on Taiwan anymore. And so that if China ever eventually decided to make a move and try to take over Taiwan, the U.S. wouldn't necessarily support them. My mm. assumption then that with the act being passed, uh, Nancy Pelosi's visit as a way to reaffirm to Taiwan, mm. we still regard you as an ally. We still you know, have your back in the larger uh, geopolitical picture. So I, I'm not surprised yeah. these two things are happening pretty much simultaneously, the CHIP Act yeah. uh, and Taiwan's this visit. also key to the military situation in Asia Pacific. So sure. it stands as a bulwark against for Japan and for India and, you know, Australia and so forth. So right. there's... But yeah, you're right. Right now, the the world will be making sure that Taiwan is safe, because any disruption would have significant implications for for the technology that we all use yeah. in society today. Yeah. So I, again, I think it's uh, the U.S. saying to Taiwan, "Yes, we are trying to spin up manufacturing here uh, on home territory, but we aren't also just going to leave you to your fate." Uh, so yes, a lot of <laughs> it's interesting. Well, you can't, you know, even if you are, are later political. on, you don't say yes. that now, do you? No, <laughs> no, you don't. No, it, 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 we still, you never know what's going to happen. But the, the, but having the Speaker of the House show up uh, yeah. against Chinese wishes is, is yeah, a reaffirmation yeah. for, uh, you know, Taiwanese leaders who are sure, nervous sure. about Politics is politics. Politics yeah. is politics. Yeah. yeah, and it's not different to a sales meeting. The salesman shows up and tells you how wonderful you are, whether he thinks you're nice or not. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yes. The sales meeting, but everybody has nuclear weapons. Yes, yeah. something like that. Yeah, <laughs> something like that. <laughs> All right, moving on. Uh, new data showing that uh, Starlink's median upload speeds have slowed down between 2021 and 2022, but download speeds have increased year over year. Uh, there's a site called Okla or Ookla that's been measuring this. They say median upload speeds for Starlink satellite broadband have dropped 33% in the U.S. and 36% in Canada from Q1 of last year to Q1 of 2022 this year. Uh, median latency has also gone up from 40 milliseconds to 43 milliseconds in that time period. However, download speeds are going up year over year in the U.S. and Canada. Mm. So by and large, the the article that I sourced this off was people are saying in certain places, Starlink starting to slow down substantially. That is not to say that it's slow. That is, it was awesome before and now it's just good. Um, however, <laughs> it's worth noting that this is to be expected. That is, for the current satellites and the current antenna being, you know, sold to users, mm -hmm. there's only a finite amount of spectrum that they can use to send a signal up to the satellite. And once that spectrum is used in a given area by a number of um, Starlink users at the same time, then it starts to become congested and to slow down. This is just like 802.1a Wi-Fi back in the day. Remember, it was fine when it was just one person on it. Put 20 right. people on it and it's really, really <laughs> sucked, right? Sure. Yes. That um, makes sense. So there is that. That's exactly what's happening here. So what I've noticed is that Starlink has focused its marketing on rural and remote users, which sort of reflects the fact that it doesn't want to overload. There is no information or response from Starlink at this time saying that this is a problem or whatever, but I think it's likely that improvements in antennas and other methods, signaling methods and so forth, and as they may or may not get access to more spectrum over time, that will probably need to see new satellites launched new antennas and then there'll be an improvement but that's an evolving situation sure and i think you know regardless of, I, if you're going to focus on keeping one thing improving you would want to focus on uh the, those download speeds folks want to get their their streaming yeah. media and so on as quick as possible if it, your upload's a little slower okay well whatever particularly if you're in a rural area with few other choices for broadband so yeah 
Yeah, well, Starlink's on the record as saying that they're dependent on the next generation on the Starship rocket. Because mm-hmm. at the moment, they can only launch 50 satellites in a run, 40 to 55 satellites in a load. They're certainly picking up the cadence. They're running two to three rocket launches a week now, which is an absolutely amazing idea that we can launch, that one company can persistently launch two to three rockets per week. Um, so they actually have a whole factory. But they need Starship, which I believe can carry 200 or something. Some, mm-hmm. I don't know the exact number, so don't, don't know. I apologize. But it's hundreds, not tens. In by comparison, if that makes sense. So one Starship launch can almost effectively fill out a substantial chunk of what needs to be done. And keep in mind that these satellites are in low Earth orbit and they're designed to come down. So something like 15% of them have already deorbited and they need to keep launching them on a, an occurring basis. And part of that is that you can replace the satellites persistently over time and put them into orbits where there is high usage and fix that problem. But you have to get the, them into orbit. Now that's all solvable. Starlink is still far better in rural locations. People talking about, you know, we used to have 500 kilobits down, you know, down right. and 100 kilobits <laughs> up. And now all of a sudden they've got 100 down and 50 up. And it's like, it doesn't matter if it gets 10% worth. It's so mind boggling better than what you had. But for us as IT people, if you're considering using Starlink, be aware that the position is that this will probably degrade over time in certain locations where density can be an issue. And, you know, look for what we'll try and keep up with what comes out in the future to see if it's going to be fixed. And don't forget, there are other companies also competing in this space. There are private uh, satellite broadband companies. And I guess one of Jeff Bezos' companies, I think Blue Origin, has also made noises about uh, playing in the space. So you will also have other yeah, choices OneWeb in the future. And the European ones, OneWeb will also be a competitor. Yeah. So lots happening in space networking. Uh, moving on, the United States Justice Department's investigating a major breach of the federal courts that targeted confidential non-public documents in the court's case management system. The attack actually took place in 2022, but we're hearing more about it now. A U.S. congressperson now says the attack was carried out by multiple foreign actors. Yeah, I'm not a security person, so I'm less concerned about the vector of attack. There's various rumors flying around about, you know, state actors and so forth. I just The thing here is that the records that the court holds include sealed records and juvenile records. And the potential for blackmail material here, the risk here is really substantial. Mm-hmm. But, and this means that this could become, but I feel it's unlikely, but it's possible for this to blow up to the point where this is a critical event for IT security in the government and especially US government, but potentially even other governments around the world and say, hang on, we have to get really serious. And that how that works out, uh, whether it's, you know, a whole of government security departments or more funding for, or whether we actually start to see much more serious criminal activities, you know, money assigned to policing mm-hmm. and catching criminals and taking them out so they don't repeat. Um, that's I, that's what I'm thinking here is just to say, could this be the critical event? And, you know, if you're somebody like China and you want to get dirt on US citizens for blackmail purposes, this is what you're looking for. Sure. Absolutely. Yeah. Sealed records, uh, sealed court records for sure. Yep. They, they aren't public. All right. Uh, moving on, we'll get into some financial results. First, Arista, they reported financial results for the second quarter of 2022. The company had its first ever quarter of a billion dollars in revenue. They squeaked just over the line with $1.05 billion. They had net income of $299 million. Uh, the company's also predicting another billion dollar quarter for Q3. As always, I want to celebrate the billion because you can bet there's some corporate bonuses associated with that. <laughs> and you note it's just a little bit over that billion, so it's not exactly a billion because that wouldn't be too obvious. But uh, still, uh, congratulations to the people at Arista who just got their bonuses because they made a billion-dollar quarter. Mm-hmm. Um, 
I think there's a few things. There's not really much here except to say that they're growing at a phenomenal rate. The shares did fall substantially, um, not because um, there's anything wrong with Arista, but because people had already bid up the pricing in. And then Arista said, you know, the next quarter things are going to be a little bit confusing. So we're not too sure that we still know what the future looks like, but that's okay. Um, you know, Arista's doing just fine. Thank you very much. Yeah, nice to see them hit that billion dollar mark uh, and to predict another one for the next quarter. Uh, so yeah, they're they're on track. Uh, so we had mentioned the Pluribus acquisition earlier and also mm-hmm. um, a very small acquisition of a, a firewall provider called Untangle. Uh, Greg, we had talked about an Untangle launching an SD-WAN product back in 2019. Uh, I was doing some digging <laughs> around on the site uh, to see, does this mean Arista is now in the SD-WAN space? Uh, I, all the references to the actual SD-WAN product kind of aren't there. Like you'll see an old mm. press release or some old material about it, but when you click on an actual link to find or buy the SD-WAN product, it's not there. I don't know if this means Arista's killing it or if maybe they're preparing to have a more significant mm. release down the line about getting to the SD-WAN market. So I'm curious what's going on here. Yeah, my sense is that they would be um, uh, looking to re-spin this into um, something that would be an SD-WAN that would be edge. It would become part of their campus. So yep. Arista has data center and everything else is campus. <laughs> kind of. Right. Uh, I don't think they'll they'll say that the campus is the WAN and, and Wi-Fi. But I think SD-WAN, we've said several times that the SD-WAN stuff is missing. So maybe they're going to re-spin the Untangle code base into EOS, use the the people from that to set up an, a first run at an SD-WAN strategy yeah. and see how it goes. They've you know In theory, it should go all the way up to SASE because they've got a threat management team. They've got the security part from the big switch acquisition. So really, uh, they're well set to round out their portfolio and move their revenue, you know, diversify the revenue stream and keep growing and becoming more of what enterprise customers want. Um, there's a whole market there waiting to be taken up. Um, and investors and analysts are particularly very excited about the campus because they think there's an enormous opportunity and Cisco's been making a lot of money in the campus space. So it makes sense for Arista to move into that market now that it's set in the data center. They did announce something they're calling Q, which is, I guess, the cloud unified edge. And they did announce the release of some, I think, uh, routers for edge or branch uh, remote locations. So I, I'm presuming down the line, we're going to hear, and now that they've got Untangle with a firewall for edge locations, I presume, you know, I'll make mm. a prediction that we're going to hear about an SD-WAN announcement from Arista, you know, sometime this year or early yeah. next. At some point or not, as the case may be. Arista or does. maybe not. Sometimes they do you know. <laughs> I mean, I think they're, they're, they're talking about a billion dollars uh, for the quarter. They're looking to diversify. As you mentioned, they're sort of uh, tied into their major revenue coming from just a few of the cloud giants. So getting into campus and then the branch and remote uh, market does help diversify. So I'm going to I'm yeah. going to put a marker down on a big uh, SD-WAN announcement from them. Yeah. Uh, and I'd, I, I wouldn't take that bet on the other side. I wouldn't lay that bet at all. <laughs> <laughs> right. And we shall see what happens. Uh, Amazon uh, also announced Q2 results. Uh, we'll focus on the AWS business unit. AWS had revenues of $19.7 billion for the quarter, up 33% year over year. And the division had $5.72 billion in operating income for the quarter. I will note the Amazon mothership did lose $2 billion in the quarter. Yeah. It's amazing that Amazon can lose $2 billion, even though uh, no, you know, they no make money. Blinks. Yeah, no one blinks. <laughs> 
but then again, Amazon continues to go and the stock price goes up. So you can lose money as long as your share price goes up yep. in the current market. That's not always been true you know, over the last hundred years, but it is true right at this particular one time. One of the things that I really liked about this is um, I, f- I saw a piece where someone said, Amazon's management has not indicated that a slowdown is looming from any macro issues, otherwise the recession or inflation. But there is a potential benefit, as there was in 2008 and 2020, that a relatively lower cost cloud option could be of need compared to building in-house. I thought that was amusing. Um, that's optimistic, <laughs> right? <laughs> That Amazon is going to start, or AWS is going to start cutting prices because of that kind of pressure? No, I think they're claiming that AWS is lower cost than on-prem. And that is, uh. <laughs> I think there'd be quite a few people who would take umbrage at that and say that yes. that is far from the truth. That's generally the lessons we've learned. Yes. So, mm. uh, sticking with cloud, Microsoft released its results for the fourth quarter of its fiscal year of 2022. Revenues were 59, $51.9 billion, up 12% year over year. They had net income of $16.7 billion, up 2% year over year for the quarter. The intelligent cloud segment that includes the Azure unit brought in $20.91 billion, about a billion dollars off of analyst expectations. And intelligent cloud is Microsoft's business biggest unit by revenue. Yeah, so you can compare Microsoft Azure at twenty point nine billion versus AWS's reported revenue of nineteen point seven, yep. and say that Azure is bigger than AWS. That was the thing that struck me. Well, there are other things inside that intelligent cloud segment besides Azure, so you'd probably yeah. have to look more closely at the numbers to say that Azure is bigger than Amazon. But uh, I think they are reaching parity in terms of revenue. It seems like it does seem that way. It's just you know, and and Microsoft has. Uh, let's say a long history of <laughs> of uh, manufacturing numbers that suit them. Uh, so yeah, I wouldn't be surprised if somebody was in there saying, well, "We need to hit this number. Let's go and put something from this into that and call it sure. cloud." You know, sure, so yeah. That that wouldn't. Be, but you know, nominally, you have to take some of these things at face value. Sometimes you could, uh, if you ever feel like arguing with somebody who might be a little bit over rotated on the AWS branding, mm-hmm. uh, say just point out that Asia, Azure is bigger than AWS and see how they go. Watch them <laughs> pop a foofy valve. <laughs> uh, Azure Azure revenue growth was forty percent year over year, but down compared to the prior quarter. I think it was forty six percent for the prior quarter, but still. Any company uh, would love 40% growth in anything, so not bad. Quarter on quarter. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. No, sorry, not quarter on quarter, year on year, but still. Yeah, no. yeah, yeah. It's, it's bonkers. It is bonkers. Uh, some other business units of note or other uh, products of note, uh, Office 365 commercial revenue was up 15% year over year. LinkedIn revenue was up 26%, Xbox down 6%. Yeah, we flagged that any shift to subscription model tends to result in a 15 to 30% price lift for any company that does it. And there's your evidence. Yep. Uh, Microsoft also released its full year uh, financial results for the year. They had $198.3 billion in revenue and net income of $72.7 billion, uh, both of which grew uh, double digits year over year. So Microsoft printing that money. It's a good day to be a Microsoft shareholder. <laughs> yes, and an executive, I'm Yeehaw. sure. <laughs> All right, uh, one last financial result, and then we'll wrap up with the surfing dog. We're talking about Fortinet. They reported results for their Q2 2022. The company had revenues of $1.03 billion, up 29% year over year, and net income of $173.5 million, also up year over year. Ding, 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 ding. There's that $1 billion number for the quarter. There it is. There, <laughs> there it is. It is. Magic billion. Uh, so <laughs> the interesting part about this is that, you know, Fortinet's continued to grow, and they actually met shareholders' expectations right in the middle um, of what they said they would, which is, you know, pretty amazing in and of itself. But then they predicted into the next quarter that they would actually 
meet what the analysts had predicted they would do next quarter. When And it turns out that analysts expected them to exceed the analyst estimates. <laughs> and they said, uh-huh, no, they wouldn't. Right. <laughs> and so the share price is down 11% today. It's, <laughs> it's, it's funny. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Amazon shares can go up when they lose $2 billion, but you make a billion and your shares go down. That's it's I Wall, know. Street. It's, Wall Street's it's, weird. It's, it's, it's bonkers. But uh, yeah, so, you know, the share price fell from $60, $60 to something like around about uh, 51 $52 as I speak, which is a pretty substantial drop. Uh, as I said, the reason is that uh, Fortinet's forward pricing has been predicted to be slower, like the growth is going to slow down. Not, mm-hmm. And so you'd have to say that, you know, given the run-up of Fortinet share price over the last two years from $25 to as high as $60, $65, that, you know, may, now might be the time to lock in your gains and sell <laughs> and just in case something else. But there's also a trend in the share market to uh, sell IT security stocks more widely. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of downgrades being happening around security stocks because they think they're overpriced or they've been overbought, as they say. Mm-hmm. As the prices run up, they become less attractive. It's hard for companies to make money when the price runs up. So this is more of a correction, which is sort of to be expected if you're owning those stocks. Sure. Yeah, it doesn't mean yeah. a catastrophe versus the security market, just kind of that typical Wall Street correction when prices get too hot. Well, we've noted in the past just how <laughs> how much stock prices in the share market have gone up. Just unbelievable. So, yep. And Fortinet yeah. has been the beneficiary of one of those. Isn't it? So. Yeah. All right, links in the show notes if you want more. We'll wrap up with the surfing dog story. Uh, there's news that there's a proposal to remove the DeckNet network protocol support from the Linux kernel. I don't know how many DeckNet uh, users are out there, but yeah. more went out for DeckNet, I guess. It's only a proposal. Uh, so, you know, there's no need to race out and pour one out. You know, we won't be at the pub on Friday afternoon commiserating. <laughs> but uh, it just struck me, I didn't realize that DeckNet code was still being supported in the Linux kernel. And um, that the, uh, the the dialogue that's going on about it, and this article comes from the register, if you follow the thread into the Linux mailing list, it's actually quite interesting to see who wants it and who doesn't. And, you know, there's the debate is really quite odd. So it seems possible that there is still some decknet out there after all these years. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, but at the end of the, th- end of the day, all things die and maybe it's time. Could be, could be. Uh, yeah, we do have that. We'll have that link to the register article if you want to go check it out, and then follow the links there if uh, you're a DeckNet mm. fan. But yes, all things do come to an end eventually, even mm. even in IT. I did like DeckNet. I mean, I did do a. I didn't do a did, lot did in it. I only did it? a couple of. Yeah, I did. I only did a couple of years in DeckNet, routing it and uh, deck mopping into devices and things like that. Mm-hmm. Back in the day, before Telnet, we used to use DeckNet to Telnet to to connect to devices and configure them. It was a very common way. Right. Because Telnet needed TCP/IP, and that was really difficult to get going most of the time. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, last vestiges of digital equipment. Yes, living Talked in the Linux that. kernel. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> All right. Well, that wraps up the news portion of the show. Stay tuned for our sponsored conversation with Aruba, talking about new AI ops capabilities in Aruba Central. That's starting right now. Today on the Tech Bytes podcast, we get into AI ops with sponsor Aruba, a Hewlett Packard enterprise company. Aruba is announcing new capabilities in its Aruba Central platform that leverage machine learning to do things like provide insights into clients on the network, recommend firmware for the best AP performance, and enable natural language queries in languages other than English. We're going to get details from our guest, Trent Fierro, Senior Marketing Manager for Cloud and AI Ops at Aruba. Uh, Trent, welcome to the podcast. And to set context, can you give us kind of a brief overview of what Aruba means by AI ops? Hi, you guys. Um, sure. 
So AI ops is the ability to basically leverage technology and automation in order to see what's going on in your network. So for instance, you're having issues with people actually, you know, just getting onto the network itself. The idea is to look at machine learning models and have the models provide you with a little bit of a description, a root cause, and even a recommendation on how to go in and, you know, solve the problem so that your IT team is, you know, obviously more efficient, getting things done more quickly, and your users are happier. Okay, so there really is about operations and not just what's the best way to configure a switch or an AP. It's day-to-day ongoing tasks that I have to do to keep the network up and running. Exactly. And, you know, the whole thing with the fact that we've also built in search, and we'll talk a little bit more about that. You can use our search in order to go in and do day zero activities. So if you're and you know, a new IT admin person, and you're coming into the environment and you want to bring up an Aruba AP, or you can use our search facility or tool to go in and ask, how do I set up the AP? And you can even go in and go, how do I set up a new SSID? Our search engine goes through our documentation, <laughs> finds the correct response for you, and then lets you basically click on something and see a config and see how, see how that's all put together. Okay, so day zero through day two. Well, we like to call it day zero, day end. Oh, yeah, <laughs> there you go. <laughs> yeah. I think that's a recognition of the fact that operations is a shift. I mean, to me, the heart of AI ops is that operations is a part of every day. Whereas before we used to buy the product, configure the product, and then walk away and hope it never blew up because then we wouldn't have to operate it. Whereas now we're saying networks are something that we touch every day. We change them every day. We need information we need visibility. We need to know what's happening. So, because the configuration changes all the time. Exactly. And, you know, I was an, an engineer a long time ago. And the idea was that a junior person might do one task and then a more senior person would, you know, get involved when something was really broken. So, you're going to have different contexts for, you know, every different type of user, which is very important. And we believe that just by going into one, you know, centralized location, Aruba Central, and then using the search facility that we can help anybody. So mm. it makes everybody just more efficient. To be effective, machine learning or AI needs essentially, you know, the more information, the better. My understanding is Aruba has designed a data lake that's collecting information from APs, from switches, from clients. Can you give us a sense of, you know, how this data lake works, what kind of information you're collecting, and then how that's used to inform the models that are providing me with, you know, uh, information or insights or recommendations about my network? Sure. it's, it's so- the idea is like a nosy neighbor, right? They know everything. In this in this case, the idea is that every piece of Aruba infrastructure is basically collecting a telemetry mm-hmm. and then pushing that into a cloud engine, which we then leverage in order to provide you with insights. Um, so let's say an, an access point, it's sending information about what kind of access point it is. It's also collecting information about what's getting connected to it. It's also looking at how people are using the particular access point where it may have an issue. So all that information is sent into the cloud and then we can pull not only network insights from that data, but we can also leverage it for security insights. And then we're also looking at application insights as well. So we like to say that the data lake is so large and diverse because we're looking at over 30 different industry verticals or customers from 30 different verticals so that we can formulate insights that map to the same type of customer Mm -hmm. that you're experiencing, right? Let's say I'm a convenience store. 
it's not going to help me if you're giving me information about how a large retailer works. Mm. I want to get information that's you know specific to my type of environment. I possibly have two or three APs. I want to see how I compare to, you know, another organization has two or three APs in each of their stores. I don't want to get compared to somebody who has a hundred APs because right. the traffic patterns are different. Um, the type of POS devices that are probably being used are different. So there's a variety of different ways to look at the information. So we mm. classify our data into over 20 different categories so that not only are we helping you fix problems, we're also looking at ways in which we can use our data or actually it's the customer's data to basically identify where we can help you optimize your environment as well. Yeah, it's that most networks are all running on the same principles. We all use the same technology. We all use the same architectures, more or less. The application differs from various company to company. Sometimes the the implementations vary slightly, but the, the, the key point here is that if you can collect enough data, you can start to correlate and see patterns. This type of, you know, if I see this many devices, this is the most common problems with that device set. Or if I see this mix of devices, these are the most common problems. And you can start to recommend to customers, this is a known problem. Like one of the th things I wanted to talk about in this announcement was you've got the firmware recommender, which is where AI Ops says, I've got problems with my firmware and like, sorry, he, you want to upgrade to the latest firmware. This is no. the one that, you know, HP Aruba recommends. That's a big deal. It, exactly. You know, 10% uh, of our tech calls are, are people calling up and asking, you know what, what firmware should I be using? And I'm also hearing from IT leaders that they have their teams going out and reading, you know, focus groups and trying to figure out, you know, from others, their peers, what they're yeah. using in their environments. It's not the most, you know, uh, intelligent way to do it, maybe, or it's probably it's valuable not either. Part. It's not a business yeah. valuable thing. And, you know, vendors release point release after point release after point release because reasons. But at the end of the day, there's one which is the recommended one. And I don't like ringing the tech much these days. So having a recommendation from a system which is basically replacing that makes sense. 10% 10, 10 of calls is a lot, right? Well, yeah. And you don't want to guess, right? Because, you know, let's say, for instance, you're a university and you've got thousands of APs and then you're uploading a new version of firmware because you read on a, you know, uh, a user group that everybody was using this particular uh, version, but they don't have some of the APs that you're running and then you run into the problem and then you've got to revert the next day. So that's not good. Mm. So what we're going to do with the AI firmware recommender is basically look at data and we're going to look at what people are using. We're going to look at the type of APs that are being used in different types of environments. And then we're going to give you a recommendation that works best for the APs in the, in the swarm that you have of APs. So if I have a mixture of, let's say, a Wi-Fi 5, Wi-Fi 6 APs, I'm going to make sure that I take into account every type of AP that you have. I'm going to try to give you one version of firmware to use across all of them, but where I can't you know, do that, I'm gonna let you know what you should be running because what we're finding is that an IT team will wait from one year to three years to upgrade <laughs> firmware if they don't know what to use, right? Yeah, it's a simple thing, but it's a blocker if you can't get a, re a solid recommendation, you know? Exactly, and you know, what happens is that you end up running, you know, three years worth of bugs or you run- mm -hmm. you know, I once spent 12 weeks researching a customer's network to make recommendations. There you go. That's a Full lot time, of time. 12 weeks. I was dying inside. My soul was <laughs> literally drying up and shriveling every day that I went in to do it. Yeah. Right. This is a job to let the AI die inside. Yeah.
Yes, please, please. If you're a consultant, it's great, you know, but if you're an IT person on that team that you're supposed to be, you know, providing yeah. a service for, then that's not great when you're spending 12 <laughs> weeks. <laughs> I did not feel fulfilled afterwards, let's say. There you go. You also mentioned, uh, you talked about insights, driving insights out of this data lake. And, and one of them, the new capabilities is called client insights. I assume this is, you know, clients attaching to the network. You're able to tell me new and interesting things about them. So what we've done is we've taken and we've provided AI-based profiling into Aruba Central Cloud. So the idea is that when you're connecting any type of device, the IT team can actually see what it is now. Um, I talk to a lot of different customers and I would bet, I don't know, 90% or more cannot tell me how many devices are on their network or what type of devices are on their network. Mm -hmm. They just don't know because people are remote, people are connecting IoT devices on their own. I was talking to a hospital. The BUs will basically go in and talk to a vendor. <laughs> They'll put a device on the network. The IT team finds out about it because it doesn't work. And then, you know, whoever's connecting it has to go and, and work with the IT team to try to figure out how to get it onto the network. Mm. So now what you can do is you can basically get a, a nice, pretty picture in Aruba Central that shows you all the clients connecting on your network. And if we see that there's a particular, let's say a surveillance camera that matches because it's from the same vendor, it's sending traffic to the same server, you can actually group that together. We're also allowing you to create tags for those devices so that if I want to create a, an enforcement policy, I can do that directly from um, Aruba Central. And I can go in and say, I want all of these particular cameras from vendor X to basically follow this particular rule set. Okay. And so whenever a new device that fits that profile comes on with that tag, it just immediately gets those policies? Exactly. So I don't really have to sit around and wait for somebody to, you know, register a device onto the network as it gets added to the network and connected. Basically, we can look at its network activity as well as, you know, the information from the profiling um, process to ensure that it's the right kind of camera and that it's doing the right thing so that the policy can be applied to automatically. And uh, as an IT person, I don't have to go store to store. Let's say it's a retail environment and I have 1500 stores. Do I want to look at every device that gets connected across 1500 stores? Probably not. Right. So I can make that an automated process and voila, away I go. So now this seems like something that I would get with ClearPass, but you're saying this client insights comes with Aruba Central platform. You've hit on something. Okay. So ClearPass Policy Manager has built-in profiling as well. Mm -hmm. It doesn't use a cloud, so there's no AI behind it. Ah, uh, okay. And then we also introduced a couple of years ago, ClearPass Device Insight. So what we've done is we've taken the technology from Device Insight and we put it into Central and we're calling it Client Insights. Got it. Okay. Mm. Okay, so the client insights is something I get in Aruba Central without necessarily also having a ClearPass license. Yes, and the nice thing is that as soon as you put a device um, under management in Aruba Central with foundation licensing, you have access to now client insights and AI profiling. Got it. So another feature that I had mentioned earlier was doing natural language queries in other languages besides English, and you've recently added Spanish where I can 
use uh, the search engine to do using natural language, run a query in Spanish and then get a response back in Spanish. Correct. So the idea there is that we're using AI for our search that allows us, you know, it gives us some flexibility to provide customers with a new way of to search. So we found that our second largest install base of Aruba Central is from a Latin American speaking countries. Mm-hmm. So now if I'm an IT person in, let's say, Mexico, I don't have to go in and learn English <laughs> as well as learn IT, you know, right. networking. Right, right. So I can go in and I can look for, um, let's say Drew's having a problem. I can, you know, in, in Spanish, write, can, you know, help me find a problem with Drew's laptop. And it, not only that, but the responses come back in Spanish, which is key. So I'm asking the question and then I'm getting a response back in Spanish. That's great. Yeah. I think it's amazing because uh, this is one of the things that AI is and you know deep learning, machine learning, however you do it, you want to look at it, is really, really good at is because at the end of the day, once you've analyzed the patterns you need for English, it f- should be a fairly straightforward you know, adaptation to do Spanish. That's not to say it's easy. It just means you, you don't have to do twice the work. It's some incremental amount of work once it's been done once. Is that a right idea or am I wrong? No, no, you're spot on. You know, the, the trick is, you know, is getting somebody to understand, you know, Spanish. So the English part, um, we're looking at queries. And then the IT team goes in uh, or the engineering team goes in on a weekly basis and looks at what people are asking for. And then they build that into the model. So right. the same is going to happen for Spanish. They've taken and they used a translator. They're, we're going to give you search in Spanish. But continuously, what's going to happen is they're going to look at what people are typing in and then add that to the model so that I'm not missing things that people are asking for. Okay, so does this mean that there are other languages on the roadmap? Um, yes, there will be uh, other languages. I'm not exactly sure where we're headed, but it's probably uh, European countries. Okay. Um, I would assume mm-hmm. you know, maybe Germany or um, uh, France, something like that. French. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So to wrap up, I, you know, we talk with a lot of vendors about AI and then also talk to our listeners about their attitudes toward AI. And there's still a little skepticism out there. I'm curious what kind of reception you're getting from actual customers who are bringing this in. Are, how are, to the recommendations that are surfacing up? Do they trust them enough to just take them or do they have to do some verification? How, what's the acceptance like? So you're, you're spot on. Um, early on, people were a little reluctant because they didn't really understand AI. Um, so there was a lot of work that we did, you know, to help people understand that AI is, you know, obviously not going to take your job. It's data. It's your data. We're going to look at it for you, um, continuously. Right. So it's a, it's an ongoing process and we're going to provide you with insights that help you identify where you could potentially, um, fix a network problem or even optimize an issue within the environment. We're also seeing, you know, based on this is that maybe 45 or larger percent of the customers would basically take a, um, an access point um, or access points, deploy them switches and not change any configuration variables. They'll run everything as a default. Um, does it work for your environment? Maybe, but it may not because maybe you're a smaller customer or maybe you're a larger customer. Mm-hmm. So. Yeah. AI can help you, you know, spot where you can get improvement from your network and you're not paying extra. You're basically, you know, taking advice, you're changing a configuration and you're getting a performance gain 
And we don't give you insights on, you know, performance optimization unless we're pretty darn sure that we're going to give you at least a 15% boost in what you're getting out of your network already. So that's key. The other thing too, is that as an IT engineer, you know, and I was an, uh, an SE in the past, you're a little reluctant to change things on, you know, the way you do things. Uh-huh. So people are, you know, warming up to uh, um, AI because we're starting to hear from our customers on how much it does help, you know, yeah. in their environments. If I install some new APs and I'm starting to use AI and I see a drop in help desk calls by 90%, I'm going to notice that. <laughs> so that's a good idea. <laughs> Customers are actively yeah. giving us numbers now on you know, uh, where they're seeing. For me, AI ops is about taking out the scut work. Like we talked earlier about the firmware, like that's not useful work. That's something, you know, you don't really care about uploading the firmware, rebooting the device, scheduling it. You know, we used to have to come in at midnight on Saturday to do firmware updates because, you know, whatever, not valuable work. But if I could be in there tuning the applications or making recommendations about future purchasing or working with the help desk so that they could be fixing problems without you having to do anything and you could be, you know, home eating Doritos on the chair, on the, on the sofa with a beer. Well, yeah, you know, like that to me is, is useful. That's that to me is what AI ops is. And it's about as trustworthy as a new employee. You've sort of got to work with it to get it up. Is that an unreasonable set of assertions to make? No, you're spot on. Um, we started doing these cheeky little videos. They're 30 seconds long. And the whole idea is to help you mm. recognize where you're wasting time. Mm. Let's say you're, you know, you're leaving work, at nine o'clock every night. And to your point, you're scheduling, you know, updates on Saturday night. One of you know, the little videos is basically an IT person getting married at the end because he doesn't have to do that anymore. Right. He actually had time <laughs> to go out and find somebody. Yeah. So it, it little fun things like that. But the whole idea is to your point, it's exactly like using um, YouTube to fix a problem at home. Let's say you want to fix a, a faucet. You go to YouTube, you you look at two or three different you know videos to see what people are doing and then you jump forward what we're saying is ai is we're ai is doing that for you it's looking at different ways that your network is running and then it's applying you know the help for you or it's giving you the advice that you can then take and move forward so you're not wasting time watching three videos i've got somebody that's continuously working 24 seven, they don't come to work with a hangover. They don't take PTO. They just give, it gives you advice all the time. And the idea is to help you be more efficient. So if we've piqued your interest, you can find out more information at arubanetworks.com. We'll also have links in the show notes that take you to specific resources, but you can start at arubanetworks.com and just search for AI ops. Uh, We are out of time, but Trent, thank you for joining us. And thanks to Aruba for being a sponsor. Sponsors make everything we do here at Packet Pushers possible. Uh, Speaking of that, everything, you can find this and many more fine free technical podcasts along with our community blog. It's all at packetpushers.net. You can follow us on Twitter at Packet Pushers. Find us on LinkedIn, hear us on Spotify, and rate us on Apple Podcasts. And last but not least, remember that too much networking would never be enough.